Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Monday, May the 9th, 2022. It is currently 9.37 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Welcome to another episode in our series, Bible Study Exercises, or Bible Study Exercise. This series is designed to get you involved in the actual study of the Bible, not just sit there and listen to someone tell you what the text Means And if you listen to our last live broadcast that we concluded about maybe just about 30, 35 minutes ago, and maybe a little longer, but yeah, um, yeah, about 30, well, about 40 minutes ago, if you listen to that last live broadcast that concluded about 40 minutes ago, not only did you hear my frustration, you were just given a perfect example where you sat there and listened to someone basically tell you, this is what a chapter means that I, that in my estimation, completely ignored the simple, straightforward reading of the text. In fact, the straightforward, simple reading of the text was completely and utterly ignored. And that, that just, it, it, it just drives me crazy. In fact, I've grown more and more frustrated. It just seems like the more I study the Bible, the more frustrated I become with Christianity at large. And I know, and, and that didn't listen, listen to what I'm saying. I, I'm not frustrated, obviously, with scripture. I'm not frustrated with Christ. I'm not stress, frustrated with the truth of Christianity. I'm frustrated with Christian Christianity as far as how we conduct and handle the scriptures. As look, Obviously, I reject Catholicism. I, I believe it's a false gospel, all right? So I'm going to say within the evangelical Protestant world, where we talk around and say the Bible is the final authority, the Bible is the final authority, it is the inspired, infallible word of God, it is the source of our doctrine, it is the source of our theology, we, we, we talk such a big game, and then we come to pa- and then it seems like after talking that big game, you can't get three Christians in a room and come to any agreement on any single verse. So how can the Bible be the source of our authority? The it, it can be all of these supposed things if we can't agree on what it simply says by the words that are used. We can't, we don't agree on, I mean, we can just go through all the things we disagree on. I've talked about it so many times. And this is just frustrating because if you've been with us, you know that for the Bible study exercise series, currently, we are working on Matthew 24. We're dedicating eight weeks to Matthew 24, and we are. Do- I'm doing as much work as I can, hour after hour of live broadcast, trying to get you to really dig into the text. There are people who've been submitting their homework assignments and the Discord channel. Thank you so very much for the work. Someone has done extra work on the study on the Antichrist. Thank you for that. You're putting it forth the effort. You're putting forth the work. I, I, I know I have not been able to engage with everyone's homework. Maybe 
the way I would like to because I'm I'm trying to like, here, go work on this. And then I'm trying to do other things to kind of supplement what you're doing. I have my own direction that I am going. So I'm not allowing myself to get too distracted in a sense by the homework because I know if I, if I look at it too much, I'm going to end up following it. But I'm hoping it's been beneficial to everyone. So here's what we're doing, all right? Um, I'm not going to go back and review everything we've done so much. We've reviewed so much recently that in some cases, I know I'm going to get emails of people complaining of all the review, but I have to keep reviewing. The reason I keep reviewing is just because, well, of what we heard in the last hour. So here's what we're doing right now. We're, we, uh, Matthew 24, what we are doing right now is we're, li- we have, I'm going to choose random sermons and we're going to review sermons just to see what other people have to say in regards to Matthew 24. Cause I want you to hear as many different perspectives, but I also want you to hear just, well, sadly, how some people I believe completely misrepresent and mishandle the chapter. And what, again, I cannot stress to you enough. What is absolutely amazing is Matthew 24. Uh, you know, the disciples point out the buildings of the temple. Jesus says, hey, this temple is going to be destroyed. They start asking questions about when this is going to happen. And Jesus begins to give them specific signs pointing to the destruction of that temple. And the very first thing he says uh, in, in Matthew 24, verse 4, take heed that no man deceive you. I pointed this out in the last live broadcast. I got to point it out again. To me, that the irony is there is just so amazing. Don't let anyone deceive you. And then for 2,000 years, people have been taking the words of Matthew 24 and basically doing whatever they want with them and creating their own narrative and imposing that narrative upon the plain reading of the text. And you can hear my frustration because it's just like, it shouldn't be that, hey, here's Matthew 24. Here's the simple reading of the text. It's straightforward. Not saying that there aren't things complicated in it, but everyone should be able to agree. Well, this is the primary focus of the chapter. And then you listen and read commentary, commentary, sermon after sermon. And you're like, okay, so clearly we can't even understand the plain reading of a text. And at that point, you just have to say, what am, what am I trying to accomplish here? So yes, I'm extremely frustrated. So let me just say this again. The plain reading of Matthew 24, is this. Jesus walks out of the temple that's standing there close to 33 AD. His disciples point to him, point out to him all the buildings of the temple. And they're like, look at this. And Jesus is like, yeah, look at all of this. It's all coming down. It's going to be destroyed. And the disciples wait till Jesus is on the, on the Mount of Olives and they go to him in private. And they're like, okay, so when is this all going to happen? When is this going to happen? And Jesus then begins to give them the signs. Obviously, the simple reading, anyone who just basic reading comprehension would say, okay, he's giving signs about the destruction of the temple. And we know when that temple was destroyed, 70 A.D., It's a historical fact. Historical fact number one, that temple was standing when Jesus was on earth around, depending on when he spoke those words, somewhere close to 33 AD. All right. That temple was standing. We all know that. We all know that that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Historical facts. Clearly, they're not asking about some future something. They're asking about that temple and Jesus gives them signs that point to it. So this is a a message from Jesus, a discourse from Jesus 
giving them the signs pointing to the destruction of that temple. However, somewhere in him giving these signs about the destruction of the temple, it feels and it seems that possibly he begins to point to things that will happen in the future. Exactly when he starts doing that, exactly how to understand it, exactly how to put that in order. Yes, there is much room for disagreement, but here's the frustrating part. We're reviewing a sermon, right? So in the last live broadcast, we started reviewing a sermon from John MacArthur. And John MacArthur completely, basically, I mean, he dogmatically asserted that Matthew 24 is a sermon by Jesus where he gives signs to his second coming, completely ignoring 70 AD. In fact, he even said that the signs Jesus gives here are not for the disciples because they're dead. They are, their signs are for us completely, utterly destroying the context and the plain reading of Matthew 24. It was the most astounding thing to hear. So we, we you can go back and listen to that, but we're just going to move forward because I would like to finish the review of this sermon tonight if we can. So are you ready? We're 21 minutes and 10 seconds into this sermon, and we're just going to jump right back in. Hopefully that gets you caught up. If you're not caught up, go back and listen. So I hopefully, hopefully, that will hopefully will be beneficial, all right? And hopefully my voice will hold out. Started having a little bit of uh, problems with my voice in the last live broadcast, but I, because I keep forgetting to bring my bottle of water up here with me. So, but uh, we'll, we'll make it through it. All right, here we go. Let's just jump in, all right? We're, look, I don't, I don't, uh, I have this queued up to 2110. This may be right in the middle of a statement. I did not queue this up perfectly, but I just backed it up a little bit so that we can just move forward, all right? So here we go. What is the event that signals your coming in full presence? Now, with that question, the Lord then preaches the message concerning His coming, and He gives them the things to look for, the signs to look for, and not to them because they're long dead, but to all who will ever read the Scripture. And starting in verse 4... Okay, so there you have it. See, he he immediately, he just ignores the whole context. I mean, th th this he stated, he's already done this a number of times in this sermon. I mean, we're 24 minutes into it. So this is a continuation of our review. But he's he's he, he just ignores 70 AD as if 70 AD has no significant here and significance here. And so when Jesus is answering their question, giving them signs, he really wasn't giving them signs because they were going to be dead. He was giving signs really to anyone who's going to read the Bible. But I mean, ultimately, the signs only really pertain to people who, I, I don't know, I, I to, I guess to the people who ultimately see it. I, I don't, I don't know because some of these signs have happened over and 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 over since 33 AD, meaning that these signs really have become utterly and completely meaningless at this point. But hey, let's forget 70 AD. Let's forget the disciples who asked the question. Let's forget the plain reading of the text. Let's just rip it all out of context because we're not here. Listen, we're not here to figure out what the Bible says, we're here to use the Bible to, to support our eschatology. I said this in the last broadcast, and I'll say it again. When your theology, when your eschatology, when it gets in the way of the plain reading of the text, 
Your eschatology and your theology has become the problem. The Bible is not there to serve your theology. The Bible is not there to serve your eschatology. Right? It doesn't work. You can't bring your eschatology and theology to the Bible, place it on top of it, and somehow magically read. You know, you're not reading your theology out of the Bible. You're reading your theology into the Bible. Because he has an eschatology. And he, he's taking that eschatology and just imposing it on Matthew 24. When Matthew 24 is screaming at us, this is when Jesus talked to his disciples about signs pointing to the destruction of the temple that he had just predicted. I mean, like, I don't know how you can't hear that, but I, you watch. I'm going to get emails. I, I reject it. It's about the second coming. Well, uh, uh, fine. I mean, you you can reject it all day. All that proves to me is not that your your view is right. All it proves to me is that we can't read the Bible and make sense of it. It just proves to me the Bible is not, is it, it's impossible to interpret it. Now, again, I'm not saying that there aren't things in Matthew 24 that may point to something future, but you would have to still describe Matthew 24 as a discourse where Jesus gives his disciples at that time signs pointing to the destruction of the temple, which occurred in 70 AD. And many of these signs only have any power or significance if they occurred between 33 and 70 AD, because some of these signs would have lost all power and meaning, like War? How many wars have there been since 33 AD? Earthquakes? Look up how many significant earthquakes have happened on Earth, just say since 1970. It's been thousands, hundreds of thousands. It's, it's just, at some point, it just becomes, those signs become meaningless. So this, many of these signs would only have any significance between people living between 33 and 70 AD. All right? You see, but some of its future yeah, but you have to determine when it makes that jump and then how does the jump fit with your chronology of events in your eschatological system? Like, there's still questions, but I just, I just want you to see again, he's like, this is all about the second coming. It's all about the second coming. Just forget 70 AD, forget the disciples. It's all 70 AD, even though they're the ones who asked the question. And he's the one he's supposedly answering. We have signs of the second coming. Signs of the second coming. Now, I want to add as a footnote here so you're not confused. We have signs of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That's what we have. If any points to the second coming, we've got to establish when the passage makes that jump and then see if that makes any sense. Now, he's getting ready to add a footnote. We're 21 minutes and 44 seconds into this. I am hoping, I am praying, I am pleading that what we're about to hear is him at least make some acknowledgement of 70 AD, okay? Now, I still think it would be, he's, it's already been so misleading, it's not even funny, but I at least would feel a little bit better. Now, if you're saying, wait a minute, you haven't listened to it yet? Remember, when I review sermons, I don't listen to them first because that would make this a production. I don't like that. I like to be reviewing in real time, all right? So here we go. I'm hoping. He's going to add a footnote. He's got to mention 70 AD, at least as a footnote. Now, it's sad that he's making a chapter that 
primarily is focusing on giving signs for the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's sad that he's going to make what the chapter is really about a footnote, but I think that's what he's got to get. He's, he's got to mention 70 AD. He has to here. He has to. The rapture of the church is not discussed in any place in Matthew 24 or 25. That is. Okay. Well, okay. I thought it was going to at least make 70 AD a footnote. Now, but this is interesting. This is important to note. Hey, the rapture is just left out of this, right? So, so this is all about the second coming, but the rapture is just left out of Matthew 24. So, so the rapture is going to happen, but it's, so now that would already tell you, now this is very important. This, this would be very important. Trying to establish a chronology of the eschatology of the second coming would already be somewhat problematic if you believe in a, a rapture, if you believe in a rapture, if you're, if you hold to an, an eschatology system that holds to that. I'm not, remember, Bible study exercise. Don't always say what I think or what I don't think. I'm trying to get you to think, all right? That's the key. But you you immediately would realize, well, man, Matthew 24 is going to be somewhat problematic because it's leaving out a significant event in eschatology. So then how do I fit the chronology? Clearly, you already, we'd have to establish it's going to be somewhat problematic. Well, that problem can make it very important, very difficult in interpreting, especially if you're making the entire chapter about the second coming. It's not here. We wait later for a fuller understanding of that. This is a message given to the context of those Jews about the second coming of Christ. The rapture is a subject that comes up in the epistles. We'll deal with that at a later time. In fact, probably in this study somewhere, we'll insert some things about that. But he is giving them a description of the time of the second coming and the signs that lead up to it. No, he's giving an answer to disciples who want to know when that temple is going to be destroyed. That is the plain, ordinary reading of the words that are used. If we can't figure that out, there is no hope in understanding anything and our Bible. Uh, I'm just, I've grown very tired that we say that, because remember, the Protestant world, we make this massive claim. We don't need a magisterial authority. We don't need a pope. We don't need a magisterial authority. The church doesn't have the authority to interpret the Bible. We, every individual Christian, has that authority and has that right. In fact, the individual Christian has such the authority and right to do so that it can call into question what the church teaches, condemn the church, get rid of a pastor, or go start another church. Now, if you make that, that's your assertion that we don't need the authority of the church and that each individual can correct the church, challenge the church, get rid of a pastor, get rid of a you know, bishop or whatever, or possibly leave that denomination because we get to interpret the Bible, then you are claiming the Bible is somewhat easy to understand and be able to interpret. But if we can't interpret a chapter that seems clear that first and foremost, it's about the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 AD. And we immediately say, nope, has nothing to do with 70 AD. He's not even mentioned 70 AD. He's mentioned specifically the second coming. Like he said, the, like, how can you do that? 
then means that, that, that there's no hope of anyone being able to interpret the Bible if we can't even figure things out that would appear simple and straightforward using the techniques you learned in reading comprehension in elementary school. Now, he starts in verse 4 giving them a series of general signs that the people alive at the future time should look forward to. He doesn't tell them how far future it is. He doesn't tell them because every believer has always lived with a sense of intimacy, a sense of imminency, rather, that Christ could come at any point. So these are general signs that are for someone in the future, but we don't know which future and we don't know which generation. Hey, hey, you guys asking about the destruction of the temple, I'm sorry, I got no signs for you. I'm going to give signs to some generation that we, that I don't know. Well, you're going to be long dead and most and generation after generation is going to die. And these signs are going to have no, you know how many generations have claimed these signs as proof that Jesus was about to come back. So you're saying Jesus is giving signs that generation after generation is going to claim or being fulfilled in their generation. And they're all going to be wrong because these are just general signs to some future generation and some generations somewhere will be able to claim these signs, but many other generations are going to claim them falsely. Yeah, what a, what a great way to interpret this chapter. What a great way. All right, let's continue. So he doesn't tell them any time. He just says signs. Notice, please, the first sign is deception. Verse 4, many will come and deceive Verse 5 says the same thing. The second sign is dissension, war, rumors of wars, so forth. Verse 7, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. All of those happened between 33 and 70 A.D. Too many historical documents, too many historical writings that would clearly demonstrate all of those occurred between 33 and 70 AD, and they would have been significant signs because you would immediately go, and remember what Jesus said about I think we're getting close to the destruction of the temple. I think we're getting close to the destruction of the temple. Those signs would have been very specific and very meaningful. The fact that he just ripped them out of their hands and placed them to some future generation that we don't even know. We may not even be that generation yet. And that every generation has basically ripped these verses and claimed them as signs for their generation. It just, it just destroys the whole meaning of this chapter. Third, devastation, famines, earthquakes. The fourth is desecration. Verse 9, they will deliver up the saints. Fifth, defection. Many of them will be offended and betray one another and hate one another and so forth. And the final is declaration. Verse 14, the worldwide preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. So he says, look for... And verse 14 is the one that everyone thinks, okay, right here. Verse 14, all that other stuff happened before 70 AD. Verse 14 jumps. It jumps to the future. False. We've proven with the words of the Apostle Paul himself in Colossians chapter 1 and the end of Romans that the Apostle Paul prior to 70 AD says the gospel had gone into all the world to every creature. The Apostle Paul stated that. And we've looked at those verses. So we would say that even that and whatever was required for that to be fulfilled was fulfilled prior to 70 AD. Still, meaning that 
All of those signs pointed to the destruction of the temple. They were all fulfilled prior to the destruction of the temple. Therefore, there's no reason to look to the future. Now, the next verse is where I, I, we've already proven verse 15 is has already been fulfilled as well, but that's where he's going to focus his time. Deception, dissension, devastation, desecration, defection, and declaration. Those are the signs. And we went through those in detail, and I showed you how they parallel Revelation 6 to 19. None of these happened in the church age. None of these happened at the destruction of Jerusalem. From verse 4 on, there is no discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem. It is absolutely foreign to this text. And that's amazing because I read about 12 commentaries this week. Eleven of them fit the destruction of Jerusalem in here somewhere, and the other one isn't sure. How can you say... Oh, my goodness gracious. So all the... I, 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 ladies and gentlemen, this, this just demonstrates that, I, I, I hate to say this, this is, this is where we've reached the point where Bible interpretation, I, I hate to say it, is nothing more than just a game. You're telling me the destruction of the temple has nothing to do, is not mentioned anywhere in this text. Wait. So let me make sure I understand this. See ye not all these things, verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another. That happened in 70 AD. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto them, the one asking the question, then he gives them the signs. All right. Okay. Yeah. I, someone just told me to calm down. Don't have a seizure. I, it's hard. It's hard not, it's hard not to get frustrated. Look, I am, I'm, I want to make it very clear. I, I, and thank you for telling me to calm down because I, I am just getting very, very frustrated with this. I'm, I'm, I'm very much willing to admit that there's things here that I think at times, I don't know if that fits 70 AD. I don't know what that fits 70 AD. But basic reading demands that I try to fit everything into 70 AD. For him to claim that verse 4 through 14 did not happen before the destruction of the temple is not only historically inaccurate, it's just insane. You're going to tell me there weren't false teachers before 70 AD? You're going to tell me there weren't earthquakes and wars but leading up from 33 AD to 70 AD, I, I, that, that I, I like it's just completely disingenuous. It's just wrong. It, we've already looked at it. It's just just you can read Josephus gives a lot of information that would fulfill mo to say most of that was fulfilled. It's just I don't know why you why why would you be so committed to ignoring? Look, why would you act like? The, the, the destruction of the temple, that's not even in this text. What are you talking about? It's all over the text. The question is, at, at any point, does it jump from the destruction of the temple in 7080 to a future period? Now, I'm more than willing to acknowledge it may jump, but when, do, when, when does it jump? And when it jumps, 
Is it in any kind of chronological order? And if it's not in any chronological order, then how do we make sense of it? Um, I mean, and not exactly. And someone just said to make those signs uh, of Christ returned makes them so insignificant and pointless. Right. Hey, earthquakes. They're a sign of Jesus coming back. Well, there's been a bazillion of them. Well, okay. So then uh, the way he handles it is these signs are only for the generation, only for the generation who will see Christ return. So in other words, for every other generation who like, wait a minute, there's all these earthquakes. It's a sign of Jesus coming back. Well, maybe not. We You, you won't know they're a sign until Jesus appears. See, then when Jesus appears, you'll be like, man, all of those earthquakes were a sign because they may not be a sign for your generation. They may not be a sign for my generation. You see how utterly ridiculous that is? Hey, here is the sign of my coming. Now, it may not be for your generation because there's going to be pestilence of war and earthquakes in every generation. But one of those generations, those signs will actually be signs. To the other ones, they're just going to be bad things happening. But to one generation, we don't know when it will be, they, they will be signs. So they're not signs until they're signs. But they're not really signs because you're not going to know they're signs until after Jesus comes back. Do you see how utterly ridiculous that is just from a purely logical perspective? Forget a hermeneutical perspective. Just crazy. Okay, but we're going to keep going because we've talked about this so much. Uh, Here we go. There is no reference to the destruction of Jerusalem here in 70 AD. This is the future prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The destruction of Jerusalem was a judgment for its own time, for its own sake, to the people at that age. It is not the end of the age. It is not the sign of the coming of Messiah. That is future. So all these six things mark the end time. And I showed you the key to that, verse 8. Would you notice it? All these surrounding verse 8 are the beginning of birth pains. Please, the word sorrow doesn't help us to interpret this text, if that's what it says in your edition of Scripture. It is birth pains that is the Greek term. And remember I said to you... You know what? I agree. It's birth pains. It's birth pains because these started happening right, I mean, pretty much immediately after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, false teachers, persecution, all of it starts almost instantaneously, all right? So those birth pains happen real quick. There's there's earthquakes, there's war. All of that starts between 33 and 70. Those are birth pains. Those are birth pains. They happened and boom, before you know it, it's the end of the, it's the destruction of the temple. But these are supposedly birth pains that started, I don't, when? 33 AD. When did they start? Well, no, according to him, the way he's implied is these are not birth pains until they're birth pains, but you don't know they're birth. So in other words, you don't really know. You can't interpret them as birth pains until you have the baby. And then you're like, oh, that's what that pain was. In other words, none of these signs are really helpful to anyone because we don't know to which generation they apply. So like he's, he's utterly destroyed this text. The, the whole point of this is these are the signs to look for so that you can get out. So you can flee Judea and you can get to the mountains. The, all of the signs points to knowing what's coming so you can get out. He's claiming 
that no generation is going to be able to know that these are the signs because these things have happened in every generation, but they're only signs to the generation in which Jesus comes back. Meaning, hey, well, the previous generation had those signs. We have those signs now. Well, do we take them serious? The last generation had them and didn't do anything. So I don't know. Do I pay attention to them? Like, it, it just, it becomes pointless. When do birth pains come? At the beginning of pregnancy? All during pregnancy? No, they come at the very end of pregnancy. And when- Right, right. You, you're catching on. Yeah, they don't happen for a long period of time. Right as you get close to the end of your pregnancy, that's when the birth pains begin. So 33 to 70 AD, that's a short period of time. Wow, you're catching on. Yeah, Uh yeah, yeah, I guess you're, someone just said, I guess you're not going to know to flee until after, right? You're not going to know to flee until after. After you're like, okay, well, I get, because none of the signs, I can't tell you that any of these signs are for us because I don't know if we're that generation. But but once, so here's what I'll do as a preacher. Once it happens, then I'll look at everyone and go, hey guys, those were the signs. Those, you do you realize that now? Those were the signs. And everybody's gonna look at me like, well, what good does that do us now? I, I don't know, that's... That's what MacArthur said. Okay, he he obviously figured out Matthew 24 because I thought these were signs pointing to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But what do I know? I can't read. When the birth pains start coming, you know birth is near. Jesus purposely chooses that as birth pains, just like the prophet of old saw the men, as it were, in travail, going through the agonies that would issue in the birth of the kingdom. All of these events stack up at the very moment of the coming of the kingdom, and they are parallel to the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of Revelation. Now, you remember the seals happen sort of elongated, and then the trumpets are faster, and then the bowls are rapid fire as there is an increasing frequency and intensity of those final pains, as there is in the birth of a child. Now, again, he just immediately says, well, they're similar to what we see in, in Revelation, so that's what this has to be referring to. Or it could be what Jesus said. Oh, you're asking me about the destruction of the temple? Well, I'm going to answer you. I mean, Let me read it again. And Jesus answered and said unto them... Who is the them? The ones who just asked about the destruction of the temple. That's what it's about. (laughs) Oh, but it's got similar language to the book of Revelation. It does. Now, some would argue that Revelation is also pointing to 70 AD. I I have a problem with that because I think the dating of Revelation makes it being written somewhere in the 90s. If you can get it written before 70 AD, I could even argue maybe that that's pointing to 70 AD. But I will say, okay, fine. But I'm not going to deny that whatever Revelation is talking about has a future implication. I'm all for willing to acknowledge that. The problem is you're saying that this is connected to that future period of time when the context is clearly not. Okay, It's 70 AD. So it's a graphic picture. So all of these things have nothing to do with the rapture of the church. They have nothing to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. They have to do with the time of the tribulation and the speeding up of events, painful events, that bring about the establishing of Messiah's kingdom. So he gives them this big picture of general things. 
But he knows that's not really what they're asking because their question was, what is the sign? How, what's the one event that says we know this is it because we might see wars and we might see deceptions and deceivers and we might see defectors and we would see the gospel being preached? That could, we could see that even now today. There could be a lot of things we see. How do we know that this is really it? So he says, all right, I'm going to give you one sign that kicks the whole thing off. All right, so he's going to give them the one sign. Now, remember, not, but see, I, the point, see, now he goes back talking to them. See, he's already said that these signs are not for them. Now he's going back talking like it is for them. Could you make up your mind? Were the signs for them? The signs were not for them. So the signs are not for them. So stop talking about them. None of these signs were for them. They were all going to be dead. They were never going to witness it. So it's not about them. So I, it's like, so I, so because they could say, well, some of this we, we could see now. Oh, wait, wait, you just said that none of those signs were fulfilled at that time. <laughs> yeah, they were fulfilled at that time. I, it, this is so just all over the place. Okay, focus in. Who were the signs for? Tell me. Not them. You've already said that. You told me it's not for every generation, but it's for that generation. Okay, so, so for one generation, there's going to be one sign that kicks it all off. All of these other signs are not really that helpful, right? Because they could be for any generation, right? Because these things could happen in any generation. So reality is verse 4 to 14 is useless. Because there's only because because anybody could be confused about those. We need one sign. One sign. All right, so the one sign we need is going to be verse 15. Here we go. And in verse 15, he says, when you therefore shall see, stop there for a moment. When stop right here. When ye, when ye, who does the ye refer to? The ye refers to the people asking the question. Oh, I know. What a radical thought that when it says when ye, or as it says in this uh, translation, so when you see, who is the you? The you goes back to the people asking the question. I think that's called like, I don't know, basic reading. But no, 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 no. You, it's not them. It's not them. It may not even be us because we may not be that generation. It's some generation, but here's the sign, the abomination of desolation. Now remember, it has nothing to do with 70 AD. Has nothing to do with 70 AD. He's already told us that. He's completely, utterly obliterated the, the historical context, the textual context, the basic reading of the text, because he is so committed to an eschatology that it is overriding the plain reading of Scripture. When your eschatology or your theology overrides the plain reading of Scripture, your eschatology and theology has got to go. It's the problem. When you see this, the end of verse 15, you better understand. So he's given them some general signs, the birth pains at the very end of man's day that result in the birth of the kingdom, but he gives them here the trigger that sets the whole thing off. This is absolutely a fabulous verse, and we're not going to get past this verse because it's so filled with truth, and we're not even going to exhaust it this morning.
but it is a key verse in understanding this transition from what he has said through 14 to what he's going to say from 15 to 31. Very, very key. Now, when you who are alive in that day, and he uses the prophetic you as we pointed out in our last study. Oh, so, so there's a prophetic you. <laughs> there's a prophetic you. All right. So this you, so we're not going to follow the basic grammar rules, right? Well, who's that you? Well, the you would go back to the people who asked the question, right? But no, no, this is a prophetic you. So you who live in that generation. So all of these signs are to the prophetic you. We don't know when that prophetic you is going to show up, but these signs are for that generation. Now that generation's not going to know they're that generation until, well, at least this sign happens. All those other signs are just useless. They're meaningless. Even he has to acknowledge they're useless and meaningless. The only sign you're going, you're going to know when you see, when you see this sign, then then you know you're that generation. Until then, you can't know you're that generation. So I don't even know what's the rest. Those other signs are just you. Why would he not at least acknowledge that those, why wouldn't he? To me, it would make more sense just logically to say verses 4 through 14 were signs for the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Then in verse 15, he jumps to a future event. Why wouldn't you at least try to pull that off? That would at least be more hermeneutically consistent. I still think 15 clearly points to 70 AD, according to any historical narrative, any historical facts would point to it. But why wouldn't you at least say 4 through 14, that those signs happened in rapid succession leading up to 70 AD. That makes perfect sense. Now, 15, it jumps to the prophetic generation, the prophetic you. Now, again, I don't know how you just all of a sudden made this you a prophetic you when basic reading skills would say that you would be to the people who asked the question. But hey, what do I know? Okay, here we go. When you who are alive in that day see this, you know you're in the tribulation. Here is the trigger that sets the birth pains of verses 4 to 14 loose on the earth. This is the key event. You say, what is that event? Wait, 15... 15 is the key that unlocks everything that happens in verse 4 through 14. What in the world? Okay. I got to back that up. Okay. This is the most, I am so perplexed now. Okay. I want you to listen to this. He is claiming that 4 through 14, they do not occur till 15. 15, so there are no signs leading up to 15, right? I mean, he kind of implied that there were, but now he's clearly implying that there's not. 15 is the key that unlocks or the trigger that fires off 4 through 14. So there is no signs leading up to the abomination of desolation. You don't even, and boom, abomination of desolation. Then boom, then there's going to be false Christ. Boom, there's going to be earthquakes. Boom, there's going to be pestilence. So in other words, this is completely, absolutely, there's no chronological order to be gained from this. There's no chronological order. Four through 14 don't come first. 15 comes first. 15 is the trigger that unlocks 4 through 14. I'm starting to think 
that literally the Bible is Plato and we do whatever we want with it. Let's listen to that again. Prophetic you, as we pointed out in our last study, when you who are alive in that day see this, you know you're in the tribulation. Here is the trigger that sets the birth pains of verses 4 to 14 loose on the earth. 15 is the trigger that sets the birth pains loose on the earth in 4 through 14. If I look through 4 through 14, they've been going on for 2000, they've been going on for 2000 years, but I guess the, the actual 4 through 14, what it's actually pointing to has not happened until the abomination of desolation. Then that sets them off. So literally there's no chronological order or he's just magically discovered the chronological order. 15 is first, 4 through 14 follows 15. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh. I I I have to Look. Okay. I I got to laugh here cuz I'm going to start crying. People pay 4 to 500 dollars to get into a conference to hear this man preach. People pay hundreds of dollars to hear this man preach. Now, I got nothing. I, listen, I got nothing but respect for MacArthur. He was very instrument, and instrumental in discipling me, right? There's, he's done great. He, I love his verse-by-verse verse preaching. There's, there's been some controversies lately that I would obviously have major problems with. But I, I, I don't want to be mean, but I'm just having a hard time, like— See, and here, and it makes me mad because see, when I was young, I would have just had a notebook just writing this all down. Boom, 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 boom. I'd have just been going to town. I, I, I probably heard this sermon uh, probably back in the 1980s because I've listened to every, I, mean, I probably have heard every sermon MacArthur has ever preached. I used, used to subscribe to his tape ministry and they were sent to my house. I, I've, I've probably heard every sermon the man's ever preached. I've probably heard this at some point in the past and I probably wrote it down. And wrote it down and as if that's how I understand it. Because I would just take his interpretation as almost dogmatic. That's why I'm doing the Bible study exercise podcast episodes. Go, no, 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 no. We're gonna, we're gonna struggle through the text. We're not just going to say, here, I'm not just gonna preach it to you, going, here's the way to understand it. I want to show you, like literally. You can, you can go to a sermon like this, or I, I don't have the book here in front of me, or you can go to a, get a book written by a preterist. The two interpretations, all the different interpretations to Matthew 24 are so radically different. Like they're not even on the same planet. And this one is absolutely just insane. That 24, that they ask a question. And what Jesus is basically saying this is one, guys, I'm not going to answer the question for you. I'm going to answer the question for the prophetic you. And we don't know where that prophetic you is going to be. But for that prophetic you, whatever generation that that you refers to, they won't know, they're not going to have any warning until the abomination of desolation occurs. When that happens, then the signs in verses 4 through 14 will be let loose on the earth. Then they'll be able to interpret those signs. But not until the abomination of desolation. It, it This destroys the what the text is, seems to actually be pointing to. 
it destroys any chronological order in the text. The chronological order is just some completely gone. You doesn't mean you. It just, I mean, this just, I don't even know what to say here. This is the key event. You say, what is that event? Look at it. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whosoever reads, let him understand. When you see that, you can understand that is the sign. Now let's go back to Daniel 11, and maybe I'll get a little further into the insight so that you'll understand where we're going. Now in Daniel 11, we meet a very important personality. And we call him Antichrist. He is called here the willful king, the king who does his own will, who does not regard the desire of women nor any god. He magnifies himself above all, verse 37. In his estate shall be honored. He honors the god of fortresses, the god of might, and so forth. And this is a description of the great Antichrist, the great willful king who does his own will, who flaunts his, his uh, dislike and hatred toward the true God and his Christ, and he sets up his own power and his own strength. And what happens if you put the biblical picture together is, in Daniel 2, we find that there will be in the end time a rising of the old Roman Empire. The final form of the Roman Empire has ten toes, and it is territorially reconstructed Rome. The old Roman Empire occupied Western Europe and uh, some of Eastern Europe as well, of course, but... Just note, there's no attempt to even prove anything. There's no attempt to prove this. It's just, it just, I'm going to just jump over here to Daniel and just start referencing verses. I'm going to reference verses in two, and I'm just going to create this entire narrative. Now, I'm not, the narrative may be right, the narrative may be wrong, but there's no attempt to prove it. And not only that, just because the, the only thing that Jesus references as, as far as Daniel is in Matthew 24 is simply the abomination of desolation or yeah, the, the abomination of, or desolation of the abomination of desolation. Let me, let me make sure I state it correctly because I don't want to state it incorrectly because now I'm just so frustrated with this entire situation uh, with the abomination of desolation. Yes, I should know what, what it is by now. I've read it a million times, but I'm just so just so frustrated here because now he just jumps off into Daniel, just making all these references. Look, the only reference we need is the abomination of desolation. Now, again, a normal reading of this text would be, well, the abomination of desolation has to be connected with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD because that's clearly what Jesus is talking about. And that's what he's seeking to answer. That's where we should look to first. But he's already not, he's not, he's not even explain why we shouldn't look to 70 AD. He's just completely ripped it out of its context. I know this is all future, not proved it. Just say, take his word for it. But let's see what he does here with Daniel, just as he just randomly grabs sections from Daniel. In, in the new final form of the Roman Empire, which is crushed by the coming of Messiah, it shows this big image, the final form, a ten-toed representation of the Roman Empire, which is smashed by the Messiah, who is called the stone cut out without hands. So the Messiah comes and crushes a final ten-nation confederacy, which is like the old Roman Empire. But what's going to happen is out of that system, according to Daniel and according to the book of Revelation, will rise a great leader. And this guy will rise out of that European confederacy, and he will become a savior to Israel. He is going to be the one who is the protector of Israel. 
They're going to make an alliance with him, as we'll see in a little while, for their own protection against the Arab-Russian alliance, which will come into a final form as Ezekiel 38 describes it and comes against them. They do it for their own protection. He, by the way, is the one spoken of in Isaiah 10, who is the one they lean on who smites them, because in the midst of that alliance, He destroys them. Israel has made an alliance with this guy. He is in control. The powers of the world move into Israel as described in the eleventh chapter of Daniel. It's described with detail at the time of the end. Verse. Remember, this is a sermon supposedly on Matthew 24. He's just imposing an entire narrative upon the text. He's not worked through. He's not done any like he's just completely eradicate. I mean, Matthew 24, this would be the abomination of Matthew. This would be the abomination of desolation, not of the temple. This sermon is becoming the abomination of desolation of Matthew 24 because he's literally not leaving any historical verbal context to this. All right. Uh, so, so someone just asked, so there's not going to be any signs or warnings of the abomination of desolation, but after it, then all the signs for Christ's return, 4 through uh, 14. Yes, that that's what he said, that the abomination of desolation is the trigger that unleashes 4 through 14 on the world. So there's, there's, no, there's no sign to the abomination of desolation. I mean, that, that's his own, he, he implied first that they would be, but then he back, then he, he's, he, no, I, I, yeah, there's no sign. You just, when the abomination of desolation gets here, then you know, four through 14 is going to occur. That's the order. That's the chronological order he has provided us. 40, the king of the south comes, the king of the north comes, all these powers come in and then comes tidings out of the east that great army from the east. And in this initial conflagration that happens, the Antichrist and his western power is victorious. But it's at that point when he's made his alliance with Israel, he's become Israel's protector, the world comes to fight against him, to fight against and take Israel. In that battle, he wins. He wins. And when he wins, he then commits the abomination of desolation, as we'll see in Daniel. Now, let's go back to Matthew, and we'll begin to pick up all of this and pull it all together. So the abomination of desolation spoken of in Matthew 24 is an abomination that occurs after the Antichrist wins a battle protecting Israel, where the historical context is pointing to the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD. No one protected Israel, and Israel was destroyed. (laughs) He's completely re, I mean, I don't need, I, by the time he's done, uh, Matthew 24 is, uh, Matthew 24 is literally about the destruction of a temple that occurred in 70 AD when Rome, Rome came in and destroyed them. No one, no one defeated the armies fighting against Rome or against Israel. Israel lost. But no, this actually the abomination of desolation that's referred to in Matthew 24 is when all these armies come against Israel, they are defeated because of the Antichrist, then he commits the abomination of desolation. It's a complete, like, I, I, I don't even know. All right, let's continue. In Matthew chapter 24, we're looking just at this one verse, verse 15. When you see the abomination, now what is an abomination? 
bdelugma, it's a strange word, basically means uh, that which is abhorrent, uh, that which is detestable, that which is utterly repulsive to God. The word is primarily used to speak of things associated with idolatry. Rome's going to come in. Rome is going to destroy the temple. Rome is going to have their symbols of idolatry with them on their standards and on their flags. They're going to take the actual things from inside the temple and carry them away. It is an abomination and it is an utter basically claim that we've just destroyed the God of the Jews. We've destroyed him. We're greater than the God of the Jews. This would fit perfectly with what happened in 70 AD. But of course, we I guess we're not even allowed to possibly consider that because according to the magisterial dogma of this sermon, it just doesn't have anything to do with it. All right. Uh, Okay, well, how someone just asked, so how do we know when it's the abomination of desolation? Well, no, it's the abomination of desolation when uh, all the armies come against Israel, they are defeated by an, because of an individual, and then that individual is going to walk into a new, newly built temple, a newly built temple, and then declare himself to be God. That's, that's the, the idea. So, we, well, the way we're going to know is, uh, Israel is going to be involved in a war. Their enemies will be defeated. The one who helps bring victory to them will then go into, well, I think we would do it this way. You need a new temple be built. Here would be the signs. You need a new temple be built. You need a war, which Israel wins as a result of an individual. And then that individual walks into the temple and declares himself to be God. Right. All the signs that are not mentioned in Matthew 24. (laughs) Everything that points to it is not mentioned in Matthew 24. (laughs) Which supposedly gives us the signs. Uh, Yeah. Okay. It is used in Revelation 17, 4 and 5 of the abominations of the false religious system known as Mystery Babylon, the prostitute, the harlot. It is used in Revelation 21, 27 where it talks about the fact that in the final heaven there will be nothing there that abominates, nothing there that is repulsive to God. The Old Testament predominantly associates it with idolatry and the, art, uh, the artifacts and the activities and the rites and rituals and ceremonies and idols that go along with idolatry. So it is a word that has basically to do with heathen gods, idol gods, which are detestable to the one true God. Now you will notice there's a genitive form here in the Greek. It is the detestable thing which desolates, which lays waste, which ruins, which desecrates. So there's going to come then a great event in the future of Israel in which there will be an idolatrous act that, a, that is an abominable thing to God, that is a detestable thing to God, and that will cause the ruination and the destruction and the devastation and the waste of the holy place. You see it there? The holy place. Now, what is the holy place? Some people say the land. Some people say the nation, the people. Well, what, some people say the city of Jerusalem. What is the holy place? In Acts 21, 28, it says, I think very simply what it is, Here Paul came back to Jerusalem after his journeys into the Gentile area. He wanted to reaffirm his commitment to the Jews. He wanted them to know that he was not 
uh, a traitor to them in any sense, so he went into the temple to go through some purification ritual with some of his Jewish friends. And when he was in there, there were some Jews from Asia who had known him over there and knew that he preached the gospel. So they started a riot. And this was their accusation against Paul in verse 28 of Acts 21. Men of Israel, help. This is the man, that is Paul is the man, teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law in this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. And it can't mean anything but the temple. Mm. Bringing Greeks into the temple is in a desolation or abomination of the holy place. Hmm. I wonder if Roman soldiers coming in and burning the place down and destroying it completely and taking all of the things inside. I wonder if that would be a desolation of the holy place. I wonder if that would be an abomination. I, I wonder if that would, if that would, would, would that, would that work? Here's a, a Roman foreign army coming into the temple mound, laying waste to everything and taking the holy relics out. Like that, would that, would that suffice? I, I don't know, but I guess we're not supposed to look to 70 AD as a fulfillment because, you know, I don't know, because, I, well, he hasn't given us a reason why we shouldn't. He just told us that we don't. We just look to the future. It can mean nothing but the temple. And I don't see any reason for it to mean anything other than that in verse 15 of Matthew 24. It is the temple, the holy place. That's nothing new for us. The Old Testament calls it the holy place. There was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies, of course. But the whole place was called the holy place, that place set apart unto God, and it is a specific place. So I think it very clearly. Someone just asked, so the holy place is actually the temple, so how does this passage not have anything to do with the destruction of the temple? Because it has nothing to do <laughs> with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, it has something to do with the defilement of the temple in, in uh, well, we don't know when, in the future. So it has nothing to do with that temple. It has something to do with a future temple. <laughs> I, I know. It, clearly, if the language is pointing to the temple and they just ask when the temple is going to be destroyed, why wouldn't you read it that way? The, gen, the normal way of reading would be like, oh, so, someone's going to desecrate this temple. Someone's going to do something horrible to this temple. And we know all the things they do. They desecrate it. They destroy it. They burn it. They, de, they carry everything away. I, I don't know how you would not like... <laughs> I, I've told, I'm telling you, this is just demonstration of like, literally, you can just make the Bible say whatever you want it to say without any regards to the actual words. He indicates the temple, and it happens when it is established in the temple that there is a, something detestable to God that devastates, ruins, and lays waste that temple. Now you say, well, um... How do we know what this is? Well, it helps us. It gives us a key in verse 15. See it there? It's that abomination of desolation, not just any abomination, not just any event, but the one spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And we'll stop right there. We'll stop with 22 minutes and 15 seconds left. <laughs> I... I don't even know what to say. And, and and he almost hinted that it's going to bring about the destruction of the temple. So I guess the new temple that will be built will be destroyed. 
I guess the new temple that will be built will, built, will be destroyed. So, I, I guess. So, I, I mean, he seemed to imply that. I don't know. I, I don't even know what to say at this point. I mean, he, there's been no proof that we should, he just dogmatically asserted, none of this has anything to do with 70 AD. That verses 4 through 14 are out of chronological order because 15 is the event that unlocks and triggers the, the actions of 4 through 14. He doesn't explain why they're not in chronological order. He doesn't explain even, and, and I don't even know how he's going to keep the rest of it in chronological order. Like, I think it, I, 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 the whole thing is just going, we've already, we've already seen the struggle with trying to keep it in chronological order and our own studies that we've been doing on this. But there you have it. We'll pick this up tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Um, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I wish I had something more profound to say. We'll just pick it up. He's going to go back to Daniel and tell us exactly what, how this event works. Make sure I've got it written down on my card here. Uh, 22, uh, 22.15, that's where we're at, 22.15. So I'll keep this card somewhere. I'll place it in my Bible here. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, there's no dramatic conclusion. I'm just, I, I'm just going to let it end with the frustration, hopefully hanging over you like it's hanging over me because that is some, that is a mess right there. All right, God bless.